0: All right, church, I hope that you are prepared to receive God's Word today and that you brought your Bibles, you brought a pen, something to take notes with, and something to take notes upon. Uh, We're going to be using a lot of references this morning, and so I've taken the time today as well to be able to make sure that these verses will be on the screen behind me. We continue our series uh, looking at our, our commitment the commitments that we make in our life. And we began this several weeks ago by considering our commitment to Jesus Christ, our commitment to prayer, commitment to worship, commitment to witnessing. And this morning, we're going to consider our commitment to giving. And so before we get to our first verse this morning, let me just share uh, some basic information for you. Maybe you're aware of some of this, but perhaps that you're not. But over 20 years plus of research, Reveals that the constant trend in giving is that three to five percent of believers that make up a church so three to five percent of believers will end up giving ten percent or more of their income to the church so that's it three to five percent the giving trend in churches throughout america is not a trend that's going upward It's in fact a trend that's going downward. 59% of all churches are experiencing either a decrease in overall giving or they become flatlined in their giving. only leaves about 41% of churches that are experiencing an increase in giving. Did you know that a person who makes $20,000 or less is eight times more likely to give 10% or more of that to the church in comparison to somebody that makes $70,000 or more. Statistics reveal that 8% of Christians who are making less than $20,000 a year will give a tithe or more to the church in comparison to the 1% of believers that make $70,000 or more. Relevant Magazine had a report that was uh, published in 2017. Uh, listen to what their findings revealed, and I would encourage you to to identify where you fall on this scale. In the report and in their findings, they said five percent of the church gives ten percent or more of their income to the church, and that that falls in line with that very first statistics that I gave you over 20 years. The average is between 3 to 5. Their report says 5% of believers give 10% or more to their church. Then it says that 15% give less than 10%, but greater than 2% to the church. So 15% give less than 10, but greater than 2. And then 50% of the church give something but it adds up to, to equal less than 2% over their overall income. So 5% give 10% or more, 15% give less than 10 but greater than 2, and then 50% give something, but it's less than 2%. Which means 30% of the church give nothing. Give nothing. Their, their giving is Zero. The um, national average of giving is currently at two and a half percent. That's the national average of what people give uh, in in their churches. You compare that to the time of the Great Depression. The national average during the Great Depression was three point three percent. If believers were to increase their their giving from the national average of two and a half percent. If they were able to increase that giving to their churches to hit a 10% mark, then an additional $165 billion would flow into the kingdom work. $165 billion. Can you imagine what could be done with that type of resource? Let me help you imagine. It would take $25 billion. billion would relieve global hunger, starvation, deaths from preventable diseases within five years. $25 billion. $12 billion would eliminate illiteracy over five years. $15 billion would solve the world's water and sanitation problems. An additional $1 billion would fully fund all missionary work that's overseas add up all of that, and you still have more than $100 billion left over that could flow into additional kingdom work. I hope you can understand that the stewardship of our finances is a tremendous and often overlooked area in our lives in which we can proclaim the gospel of Jesus. The first verse I want to share with you, it's going to come from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. May we understand that as believers we give because of the grace and the generosity that God has given unto us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 7 declares, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We have been called to give both willfully and cheerfully. Our giving is to be directed by God, but motivated by love. That's why here at First Baptist, we're going to view giving as an expression of worship. And it's an awesome thing to do. As we give our our tithes and our offerings, we should do so with a cheerful heart. The time of passing those plates ought to be a time that we celebrate in church. Let me ask you, how much thought have you been placing upon the gift that you've been giving. I think we assume that God has automatically determined in the past the amount that we're supposed to give and the frequency in which we're supposed to give it, just like he did for the children of Israel. But in reality, through the law, God only determined some of the gifts and some of the frequency in which they were to give. Not all of them. In fact, many of the offerings that God asked for from the children of Israel, he left it up to the giver to determine the amount and the frequency. I say all that because I want you to realize that today's message goes beyond just the question and the validity of the tithe. Because when you speak the word tithe in a church, you typically have Uh, People that fall on one or two sides. You have group A that says, okay, the tithe means 10%, and 10% was uh, 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 a standard or a practice of giving in the Old Testament and is still the minimum standard of giving for the believer today. Their line of thinking will say that, yes, the minimum standard that we give is 10%. Anything that we give above and beyond that 10% is no longer a tithe, but that is an offering. That's one line of thinking. And then you have a whole another group that says the 10% was an old testament giving standard, but it's not a minimum standard for Christian believers today. It's a goal, it's a target, it's a it's an idea, but it's not something that must be enforced upon every single believer. And then you have this tension, which is it? Is it group A? Is it group B? And my answer is yes. Yes. Let me unpack that with you a little bit today. The most common passage that gets used in order to encourage tithing in the church comes from the book of Malachi. Take your Bibles and turn with me there. Malachi, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it is the very last book in the Old Testament. So if you still can't figure out where to find it, go to Matthew and then just turn the page to the left, and you'll be there. This is the most common passage that gets used to encourage tithing within the church. I want to walk us through this a little bit, and we've got a lot to unpack today. Malachi chapter 3, listen as I read verses 8 through 10. It says, should people cheat God? You have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me on the tithes and the offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. And so often, pastors will use this passage of Scripture to to suggest to the church that their responsibility is to bring the tithe, their 10%, to the storehouse or to the church, and they're to do that in order to avoid God's curses and to receive God's blessing. I want to take a, a deeper look into the context of this passage. Because first, who's receiving the rebuke here? And to understand that, go back to, to chapter 1. In much of the book of Malachi, it is addressing the priest, not the broader Israelite nation. And so in Malachi chapter 1, verse number 6, it says, The Lord of heaven's armies says to the priest, A son honors his father, and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. It's addressing the priest. And then listen to the strong address that he gives in Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. Listen, you priest, this command is for you. Listen to me and make up your mind to honor my name, says the Lord of heaven's army. Or I will bring a terrible curse against you. I will curse even the blessings you receive. Indeed, I have already cursed them. Because you have not taken my warning to heart, I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with the manure from your festival sacrifices, and I will throw you on the manure pile. Then at last you will know it was I who sent you this warning so that my covenant with the Levites can continue, says the Lord of heaven's army. Again, addressing the priest. What was the role of the priest? among their many roles, among their primary function, would be that they offered the daily sacrifices at the temple. In order to carry out these sacrifices, then they required a a large livestock supply. And the animals for the sacrifice from which they used were provided primarily through the offerings and the mixed gifts that were presented them from the nation at large. But they also receive animals and the sacrifices through the Levites who gave a tithe of the Levite tithe, often referred to a tithe of a tithe or a storehouse tithe. We'll get to that in a minute. And so so they're to give from, from that. And so why are the priests being rebuked in Malachi? Well, they're being rebuked because instead of offering the best of the sacrifices, They were holding the best back for themselves and then they were presenting and sacrificing blind and lame animals instead. Now, uh, to understand why any of this matters, you have to go back to the original instructions and you got to see what God originally commanded them to do. And so we find that in Numbers chapter 18. In Numbers chapter 18, verses 28 and 29, it says that you must present one-tenth of the tithe received from the israelites as a sacred offering to the lord this is the lord's sacred portion and you must present it to aaron the priest verse 29 be sure to give the lord the best portions of the gifts given to you so you got to bring in the best you can't bring him the the blind the lame the 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 the, the, the tainted sacrifices you had to bring him the pure sacrifices now here we're told in Malachi chapter 1, again, it's on the screen, verse 7, says you have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? You defiled them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, when you show, why show you any favor at all? How I wish you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I am not pleased with you. Says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will not accept your offering. Now this is Malachi Chapter 1. So understand what we read through chapter 1 and chapter 2. Go back to chapter 3. So how are they robbing or, or how are they cheating God? Well, in chapter 3, the rebuke resumes, and God gives a call to repentance. And so, based upon the context of chapters 1 and chapter 2, we see that the priest were withholding the acceptable animals that they should have been sacrificing. We know from other texts like Nehemiah chapter uh, 10 that the, the, the nation of Israel itself weren't bringing their full tithes in the first place, which meant that the priests weren't able to tithe off of the tithe that was brought to them because they weren't bringing the full tithe to begin with. Yes, giving was falling down on all levels. And so we find the rebuke. Malachi 3, verse 6, I am the Lord, I do not change. This is why uh, you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. Ever since the days of our ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you. But you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? Should people cheat God? You have cheated me. You ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and the offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the uh, the Lord of heaven's Armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. I think when we're frequently tempted to think that if we'll just give God his 10%, then we're free to do with the 90%, whatever it is that we want to. But I'm here to tell you that God is equally concerned with what you and how you handle the 90% as he is how you handle the 10%. For instance... It's not enough for it to say, all right, God, I gave you Sunday morning. I gave you that. I worshiped you. I went to church. I went to Bible study. I gave you a portion of my week. Now I can go and I can do whatever I want with the rest of my week and with my life. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way with living. It doesn't work that way with giving. God's concerned and he cares about how we handle all of our finances. And it's not just about the tithe. So let me try to be clear with you, right? So, so how do I view the tithe? Well, I think that the tithe can be a method that is employed by a believer that will help them bring a gift that is honorable and acceptable unto God. I think it could be a good thing. But I also think that a tithe, if we're not careful can become s- simply a rigid method, one that approaches God as though He's a bill collector, one that gets us in a habit of presenting a gift from a disconnected heart. The truth of the matter, giving is a heart issue, it's not a money issue. Did you know that there are approximately 2,000 verses in the scripture? that talk about giving 2,000 of all those verses about 1400 verses uh, talk about offerings another 550 verses uh, talk about gifts and special gifts and then that leaves the remaining about 50 verses that deal with tithing isn't it interesting of everything that scripture has to tell us about giving Only 2% of it is talking about tithing. And yet, we seem to put all the emphasis on the 2%. I want to encourage us to have a full view of what God has to tell us and and teach us about giving. Not just a partial view that is based upon 2% of what God has to say. So I want us to get a little bit deeper and have a broader understanding of it all. Did you know, check out this next slide, that there are roughly 15 different gifts that are mentioned in the Bible. Fifteen. You see, there's a burnt offering, a peace offering, grain offering, sin offering, guilt offering. And then you have all these verses that talk about vows and free will and firstborn and firstfruits, the temple tax, the harvest gifts, gifts to the poor. And then you get to tithing. And you realize that there's more than just one tithe that is mentioned in the scripture. So if you wanted to be a faithful uh, practice, if you want to faithfully practice tithing, then you would understand that there's a Levite tithe, there's a festival tithe, or uh, that's called the party tithe. You should check that out. It's interesting. And, and then, yo, know, go back. Go back to the next one, the last one. Yeah, and then there's this welfare tithe. So if you want to practice the the tithing method in Scripture, and if you're on a sabbatical year rotation, then ultimately you're not giving 10% of what you receive. You're giving 20%, 20%, and then the third year is the year that includes the welfare tithe. So you're giving a cycle of 20%, 20%, 30%. It's greater than just 10%. Now, there's roughly... Fifteen different gifts or offerings that are mentioned in the scripture. I want to show you this next one. Look at this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse number six. There it says, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions, or your text might say special gifts that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of the herd and of your flock. Why do I show that verse? That verse serves as an example. In one verse, we find seven different gifts that are mentioned in just one verse. Seven. I hope you understand why it's so important for us to try to take it all in, not just look at a partial glimpse of what God has to say about giving. I go back to the next one, right? Uh, So here we have 15 different gifts or offerings that are mentioned in the scriptures. And and these can be broken up into three major sections. Next one. Those three major sections, you see them there on the screen. Offerings, gifts, tithes. Remember, offerings, there's 1,400 verses that deal with that first column. There's 550 different verses that deal with the gifts in the second column. And there's roughly 50 verses that deal with the tithe there in the third and final column. And of these 15 different gifts that are broken out into these three major sections, uh, go ahead and show the next one. Those in the yellow. uh, Those are the gifts that God determines the amount and the frequency of. There's seven of them. Which means the majority of the gifts and the offerings that talk about in Scripture, God doesn't set the amount or the frequency God gives the, leaves that up to the giver to determine the amount and the frequency. And so let me show you in Scripture how this kind of gets played out. We're going to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, Paul says, in response to the issue of giving, Paul says, you decide. You decide. Verse number 6 says, the point is this. Now, real quick, before I read this next one, who in here has a New Living Translation? Anybody have a New Living Translation? It is a great resource to have. I love the beauty of how the NLT renders verse number 8. It's on the screen. And verse number 8 says, And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. So our giving is, Ought to be out of the overflow of the generosity of God. Paul says, you decide. There's no standard. There's no amount. There's no formula to use or percentage that's to be given. Only you decide. You determine in your heart. You purpose in your heart, what it is that you want to give as you begin to know and you begin to understand just how much God has given you, just how much God has blessed you in response to that, give, give. I want to take a moment to to look at some of the examples in Scripture about this type of giving. What I mean by that is the giving that has been done uh, as an individual says for themselves, In response to what God is doing, hey, this is what I want to give. So let's look at our first example. Our first example is from King Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, it says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married one of his daughters. He brought her to live in the city of David until he could finish building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around the city at that time the people of Israel sacrificed their offerings at local places of worship for the temple honoring the name of the Lord had not yet been built Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the decrees of his father David except that Solomon too offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the local places of worship the most important of these places of worship was at Gibeon so the king went there and sacrifice a thousand burnt offerings. That night, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. And God said, what do you want? Ask, and I'll give it to you. So the question, why did Solomon give a thousand burnt offerings as his sacrifice? Was he instructed? Was he commanded? Was he, was, did God determine and demand the amount that he was supposed to give? No. No. Solomon purposed in his own heart the amount that he thought was appropriate for for the gift that that he gave unto the Lord. And how did God receive that? He he received it, and he answered and says, what do you want? Ask, and I'll give it to you. Let's look at another example, Zacchaeus, from Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, it says uh, that Jesus entered Jericho, and he made his way through the town. Uh, There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a good look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed the sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Anybody read this story and always have that song in your mind as your, was a wee little man, a wee little man, was he, yeah, all right. Uh, Verse 5, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and he took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He had gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I'll give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation had come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now, why did uh, Zacchaeus give half of his wealth to the poor? Who told him to give half of his wealth to the poor? Who told him to repay all the people that he stole money from in the past, four times the amount that he robbed them of. No, nobody told him to. Apparently, Zacchaeus determined the amount because his heart was moved by the salvation that was extended to him that day. There's no record of Jesus telling him what to give and and how to give it. Nor is there a standard of of giving half of your wealth away mentioned anywhere else in the Scripture. Zacchaeus determined what was an appropriate and acceptable gift out of his knowledge of who God is and and how he's been blessed. Let me show you one more. This is the story of the poor widow found in Mark chapter 12. There it says when Jesus uh, sat down uh, near the collection box in the temple, and he watched as crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. I want you to understand that when Jesus uses the word poor, we're not talking about somebody who's just struggling to pay the bills. In, in this story, he uses two different words to describe this widow. And each word gives a greater degree of the poverty that she was in. This is a person who is in uh, abject poverty. Which means they're completely relying on the gifts of other people. In order to meet their daily needs. This person has nothing at all. Okay. And then in verse 43. It says Jesus called his disciples to him and said. I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Did Jesus tell her what to do or how much to give? No. No, she determined in her heart what was an appropriate and acceptable gift, and then she presented it unto God. For some of us who who, who like the idea of being told Exactly what to do and when to do it. For some of us, this concept, this freeing concept, could, could be a bit of a struggle for us. But it's so important that we see God, how God views giving. In fact, God views giving much like He views all the other areas of our relationship with Him. For instance, God doesn't tell us how many times a day. We're supposed to pray he doesn't say god doesn't tell us how long or how often we're to read the bible that's not we're not told god doesn't tell us how many bible studies we're supposed to attend he doesn't give us commands about how often and how long we're supposed to fast oh i'd write this down i'd encourage you to read through matthew chapter 6 at some point today because in Matthew chapter 6 it's so beautiful you're going to see Jesus give us instructions about spiritual disciplines that we're to be cultivating in our lives and so as you read through Matthew chapter 6 you'll get to verse number 2 and Jesus is going to say and when you give and then he's going to give some instructions about giving you'll get to verse number 5 and there he's going to say and when you pray, and he's going to give you some instructions about praying. And then when you get to verse number 16, he's going to say, and when you fast, and that's followed by instructions related to fasting. Read through Matthew chapter 6, and it is clear that basic to the understanding of our Lord and Savior is that we would be a people who would pray, who would give, and who would fast. He doesn't say if you should pray. He doesn't say if if you should decide to give, or if you should choose to fast. He says, when? Because that's what we're to do. We're to be in people who pray, who give, and who fast. So what's important to note in all of that is that our Christian life is not based on a whole bunch of rules and rituals. Rather, our life is based on a relationship with a loving and living God. And God views our giving to him as something extremely personal. Let me share with you a few more scriptures. After all, there's 2,000 of them mentioned in the Bible. And I don't really have my family here with me today to celebrate Father's Day with. So let's just work through all 2,000 verses. (laughs) Maybe not. But we are going to look at a few more. Exodus chapter 35 says, then Moses said to the whole community of Israel, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take a sacred offering for the Lord. Let those with generous hearts present the following gifts to the Lord. Gold, silver, bronze, and then verse after verse, there's a listing of different things that he encouraged the people to bring. But who were to bring it? Just simply those that were generous of heart. And if you begin to read through that account, you'll begin to see that the people were so moved to give in response to what God has done that they actually got to the point in the very next chapter where Moses had to say, Listen well, what God said. God told us before, give. Now God has given me a special message that says, stop. Stop giving. You've given way more than enough. Can you imagine that happening in church? How awesome would that be? They would be like, no, we, we don't need to take up an offering. Stop. We have more resources than we can handle to accomplish the task that's before us. Well, that's what happens here in Exodus chapter 35. And then other places like Ezra chapter 2. Exiles have just returned after Nebuchadnezzar had deported them to Babylon. And in verse number 68, it says, When they arrived at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the family leaders made voluntary offerings towards the rebuilding of God's temple on its original site. And each leader gave as much as he could. The total of their gifts came to 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, and 100 robes for the priest. And who gave? Voluntary gifts. And the leaders gave based upon what they were able to, to give. And this giving approach continues in the New Testament. In places like 2 Corinthians chapter 8 it says, here's my advice it would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year you were the first who wanted to give and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean that your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourself. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. One more text for you this morning, church. This one comes from Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, beginning of verse number 27, it says, During the time some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Agabus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea. Everyone gave as much as they could. They gave what they could. This they did entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. As I read through all of these verses... Things that that come to my mind are questions like, why do you think that God leaves it so open-ended when it comes to the matter of giving? I think it's because God wants us to give out of our relationship with Him. That God wants us to give in response to us knowing Him, knowing His Word, knowing His plan, knowing His purpose, God wants us to give in response to our knowing and our loving him. He wants us to offer gifts that are acceptable, gifts that bring him joy, as well as gifts that cause us to delight in delighting him. You understand that? You ever give a gift to somebody that you were just as excited for them uh, to receive it as you were to actually give that gift? My wife and I... I'm not really good with surprises. I just, I get so excited and so anxious. We just kind of like ruin it before the surprise ever happens. Because we're just so excited to share. And so like this past year, uh, my wife and I, we celebrated our 25-year our wedding anniversary. And so in that, leading up to that, I figured I had one of two ways to do this thing. And only one of them would probably be right. So I had to be really careful which way I went with this. I figured I could take the easy road and I can say, baby, like our anniversary is coming up. What do you want? What do you want? And she could tell me something, and then I could go out and I could purchase whatever it is that she told me. I could even wrap it. And then when our anniversary came, I could present her that gift, and then she can open that gift, and when she opens it, She's not really going to be surprised. She might be somewhat thankful. After all, I did exactly what she told me to do. That's one way to do it. Or I could go a different route. I could not ask her. Instead of asking her, I could actually pay attention to her. I could pay attention to what she likes and what she doesn't like. Pay attention to uh, her heart's desire. After all, it's been 25 years. I should know what she likes and what she doesn't like. I, I should know the things that please her. I should know her taste and her preferences. And based upon all that knowledge, then I can go and I could secure gifts that I decided. Based upon my knowledge of my wife and my love for her, I can go out and I can purchase some things so I can wrap them up and I can present them to her on our anniversary. And then she can take that gift and she can open up that gift, the gift that says, maybe I know you. Not only do I know you, this is a gift that expresses I love you. And she can open that gift and I would imagine that her response to that approach would be considerably different than the, the first approach. The first approach, I just fulfilled an obligation. The second one says, I know you. I love you. I want you to have this. So what did I do? I went plan two. I did the right one. I didn't ask her. I just presented her. What did I give her? None of your business. So don't ask. Now, do you see the difference in that approach? When I choose the gift, it has meaning and significance. But when I buy what she requested, then I've merely just fulfilled an obligation. What type of approach do you think pleases God? The gift that he tells us how much and how often, and then we simply just write a check and put it in the offering? Or the gift that we present on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis, whatever it is that you do, the one that says, Father, I know you. I know your plan. I know your purpose. Not only do I know you, I love you. I love you. And I want to present my gift today with great excitement, with great eagerness. I come and I present it with joy because I know and I love you. I think the second one, is the most pleasing approach to take. Church, I want you to know that when I talk about giving, it is not for the purpose to beat you down or to make you feel guilty. Typically, what happens in a church when when you talk about giving, well, if you announce that you're going to talk about giving, then attendance goes down. If you just spring it on them, then those that give are typically encouraged and those that don't, leave offended and, uh, and irritated. That's just usually what happens. But my desire isn't to, like, make you mad. My desire isn't to, to upset you or to cause frustration in your life. My desire is to encourage you, to encourage you to, to give a, a heartfelt gift when you give to support the ministry and the mission of the church. Every year the church gets together and we make a decision and we say, yes, this is what we project to be the operating cost of what it is that we want to accomplish in the next year. We We think it's going to cost X amount of dollars to support our staff, to support our ministries, to support the missions that we feel God has placed in front of us. And we make a decision every single year, this church votes in favor of supporting that budget. But maybe you don't realize that as part of that vote in favor of the budget is also a commitment to do your part. We don't just say yes with our mouths. We say yes in how we give and what we give. So be encouraged today, church. Giving is a freeing experience. And God is also oh good to us. He has blessed us in far too many ways that we could ever spend to fully unpack all of his blessing. And we're to give to respond to that. And we trust him. As I read in 2 Corinthians, we trust him. We give. And we'll continue to give. And as we give, he will be faithful to meet all of our needs. In fact, he not only meets our needs, he gives us more than what we need. And here's where we typically mess up. And then I'll end on this. Typically, we mess up with those blessings that God gives us when He increases our income, when we—how do I say—an uh, increase in our standard of income. That you, maybe, I, man, I'm butchering this up. My thoughts are random. You get a bonus at work. You get a pay raise. Right, You get a new job, you get a new position, and you get more income that comes with that. Typically, what we do is we don't see that as God's blessing us so that we can continue to be a blessing to others. Typically, what we end up doing is we end up adjusting our standard of living to match our standard of income. Does that make sense? When God was faithful to us, and we'll be good if we give trusting honoring Him, loving Him. Then He will supply all of our needs in addition to giving us what we need. We'll have more. And be careful what you do with that more. You know, go buy your new toy and enjoy all of that if that's what you want. But don't let that take possession of who you are. Always be ready. Always be willing to liquidate whatever asset we have in order to support the needs and the ministry of the church. This is who we are and what we're supposed to do. That's what the early church looked like. And May we become a church that loves to celebrate our giving. May we don't approach giving with a heaviness of a heart, but may we approach it with joy, with great excitement and anticipation. And after all that, I feel like, let's just take up an offering again. But we won't. I would encourage you to give prayerful consideration for the next next gift that you come and that you give to our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this church and this time together. God, I pray that we would not run away from the issue of giving, that we would immerse ourselves in your word and begin to understand what it is that you desire from us. God, help us all to have a heartfelt desire to present to you a gift, an offering, a tithe, one that is pleasing and acceptable, one that comes from a, a heart of love. May we no longer approach you as a bill collector, Father. God, may we approach you with the respect and the reverence that you're due. May we trust you in all areas of our life. Christ's name I pray. Amen.